for being so good, being so great. Set this I uh, gave you homework last week and asked you to read about the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to get there. But first I want you to turn to Galatians 4 and Matthew 5. Okay? Galatians 4 and Matthew chapter 5. So, now, now, where do you go to meet God? Where do you go to fellowship with God? That's a question that had to have been circulating through the minds of the disciples. Think about it. They finally wrapped their hearts around the reality that the place to meet God was not a place at all, but it was a person. Finally got their heart around that. Finally began to embrace that. The mystery of God had been unfolded right before their eyes. Here he is. Okay, we get it. No longer the tabernacle. No longer the temple. But the presence of God is right here manifested and revealed in a person, the Son of God. And just about the kind they came to accept that he was who he said he was, he began to say some seemingly contradictory things. Things like, uh, I will be with you always. I am with you, but I will be in you. And things like, I will go away to the Father, and you can't come. You're going to be with me always, but you're leaving to go to the Father, and I can't come. And then he left. Now what? Where do we worship God now? Where's the presence of God manifested on the earth now? Little did they realize at the time that even in the leaving, during that period of time, the Father was up to something. Galatians chapter 4. I want us to look at two verses. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Take note of the word fullness. When the fullness of time came, there was an appointed period of time. And when the fullness of that period of time was realized, God did something. Now look with me in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And those are two separate things, and we'll see those in a minute. I didn't come to just discount those. I didn't come to just discount the law. I didn't just come 
in no regard for the prophecies that were out there and the prophets that had spoken. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And the word fullness in Galatians chapter 4, and this word fulfill have at their base the very same root. And what he's saying is this, a change is about to occur. If there's a period of time, and that period of time is finite, and you reach the end of that period of time, what's after that? All right? And listen, you will learn much more in Scripture when you approach Scripture asking questions instead of judging it. Asking questions like, well, okay, if there's this fullness of time, what's next? There has to be a period of time. There has to be a designated period of time. Fullness of time literally means the end of an appointed time. There was an appointed time. And at the end of this appointed time, God sent his son. What was the appointed time? What took place during that period of time? And then in Matthew, when he uses the word fulfill, the word fulfill means to bring to completion something that had been pledged before. To bring to completion something that had been, ful- that had been pledged before. In Galatians, you could substitute that word. There was a period of time, and there it was... They were, he brought to completion this period of time. It had been promised. There's a period of time. And when this period of time is up, God has set a point this period of time. And when this time is up, then the next question is, well, what happens after that period of time? And here in Matthew, he's saying, I didn't come to do away with the law. I didn't come to do away with the prophets. I came away. I came here to fulfill it. I came here to bring to completion the law and the prophets. It means to complete. It means to end. It means to expire by filling it up. In order to fulfill something, all of the requirements must be met. I am coming to fulfill the prophets. I am coming to fulfill everything that they've said. I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to meet the requirements for everything that the law has required. I have come to fulfill this period of time. God sent his son on the fullness of time. At least 12 times in the Gospels, we see a phrase similar to this. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Over 12 times, when it talks about Jesus did that, and it says that was that it might fulfill what the prophets said. He did that, that it might fulfill what the prophets said. So he didn't come to discount what the prophet says. He came to live out in reality what the prophet said. To fill that up. The timing was significant and the action was significant. 
And we'll see that even after the ascension of Jesus, he continued to fulfill the prophets. He also said that he came to fulfill the law, meaning he would complete all the requirements of the law, thereby ending the law's influence on God's children. (laughs) Meaning, he would complete all the requirements of the law, thereby ending the law's influence on God's children. We're going to see that a lot more in the weeks to come. The Bible actually says that, by the way. Oh, I didn't make that up. Okay? The order and the timing of the events that took place the last week of Jesus' life is significant to Christ fulfilling the law and fulfilling the period of time and fulfilling the prophets. Okay? That week... And see, that's why it's important to read it with questions in mind. For instance, where'd they get the palm leaves? Well, people don't walk around with palm leaves. I mean, just, there it was, let's do this. How'd they know Jesus was coming to town? Disciples didn't even know he was coming to town. How'd they know he was coming to town? Questions. Ask questions. When you look at it, ask questions, and then be still and quiet long enough to listen and see what the Lord shows you. But the order and the timing of the events that took place that last week of Jesus' life is significant to Christ fulfilling the law, to Christ fulfilling the prophets, and to Christ experiencing in reality the fullness of time being realized. Okay? In the life of Jesus, the symbol and the substance repeatedly intersected. There would be the symbolism. I mean, one of the great places of it is Jesus standing in the synagogue reading the Word. Here's the living Word, the reality, quoting the written Word, which is the symbol, and they intersected. They touched. They crossed. They became connected or touched with one another. The symbol and the substance repeatedly intersected in the life of Jesus. But during the completion of this appointed time, there was a head-on collision. Okay? The shadow was taking place at the exact same time the reality was being fulfilled. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Jewish New Year starts with the month Nisan. Starts 14 days after the first of that month, which is typically our April. The Jewish New Year starts with the month Nisan. At that point in time, thousands of people came from all over the world to Jerusalem. The city was packed. 
They didn't have holiday inns. They didn't have motel sixes. There were people sleeping on the streets. There were people sleeping in pastures. There were people that had room in their homes. They were leasing or renting out rooms for people to come. It was an absolute chaos in this little old small town to be overrun with this many people. On the 14th day of that first month, excuse me, on the 10th day of that first month, the high priest would go outside of the temple, outside of the town to a little pen where they kept all the lambs that were the potential Passover lamb. Couldn't just be any lamb. But there was a little pen where they kept the lambs. And the high priest would walk out there. He would make a time not allowing, a casual observation of the lambs, and he would pick one. This one looks like the perfect lamb. This looks like the one to bring back to be the Passover lamb. The streets, when he did this, the streets would be lined with throngs of people and priests with trumpets and palm branches. And they did this every year. They did it in hopes that today would be the day the Messiah would come. And they would be ready. If he comes today, he hadn't come yet. All these years they've been doing this. The priest would go out to pick the lamb. He would pick the lamb. He would bring it back into Jerusalem. When the Messiah didn't come and the priest would come bringing the lamb, they would throw down the palm branches, the priest would blow the trumpet, and they would say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the lamb. Here's the priest. He's coming in the name of the Lord. They did it in hopes, just in an off chance, that this would be the time that the Messiah made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem to set them free from the oppressions of the Romans. They were there for the priest. They were there for the lamb. They were there on the off chance that today might be the day that they were liberated because this Messiah would come in riding his white horse, so to speak, bearing a sword, ready to take over Rome. And then comes Jesus on a donkey. Not knowing who he was. They weren't there for Jesus. They were there for the priest. They were there for the lamb. They were there on the off chance that the Messiah would make his triumphant entry. As the priest would return, the people and priest would lay down their palm branches, blow their trumpets, and cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus comes in riding a donkey colt. Not the triumphant entry they had in mind. And that's why the Pharisees were so offended. They were saying, Jesus, this isn't for you. Jesus, this isn't your celebration. This isn't your party. And these people, the disciples have started joining in with the crowd. Tell them to stop. Jesus said, I tell you this, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Made his entry. Now for four days, 
the lamb was closely examined to see if there would be any blemish discovered. Every day, hour upon hour, the priest would examine it. The priest would look at it from head to toe, belly to back, feet. Any blemish at all would eliminate it. He had to determine that there was no blemish. If there was no blemish, the lamb would die. He would be sacrificed. Now Jesus had already been examined for three years, and it had been determined by John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. It had been determined by Peter, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. It had been determined by the crowd, even though they didn't know it, one who comes in the name of the Lord. But more important than anything else, it had been determined by the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But for three, four days, intensely, he was examined by the priests, by the Sanhedrin, and by Pilate, and ultimately determined, behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The lamb was without blemish. The symbolism taking place at the same moment the reality was. Clashing. There's no blemish. And the chief priests and officers who preferred the symbol over the substance, who preferred the religion over the reality, declared, kill him anyway. Kill him anyway. And on the 14th day of that month, the Passover begins. Now, the word feast of Passover, the word feast literally means appointed, scheduled. It's an appointed feast. It's an appointed celebration. It's a designated time. At the same time the Passover lamb was being killed, Christ was being crucified and died. Symbolism substance clash the reality brought on the scene the reality of the Passover was being realized at the same time the symbolism was being carried out the 15th the very next day Passover meal First meal of the Passover meal, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The very next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread takes place. It's the meal of the Passover. The Passover meal is the first meal of a seven-day celebration, being the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they would take wheat and they they would make bread, but they wouldn't put leaven in it. Leaven represented sinfulness represented sin. And they would take the bread and they would make a loaf without without leaven so it didn't rise, didn't have yeast in it. And this loaf of bread, this 
pan of bread would have stripes on it. No real understanding except God says put stripes on it. And they would take it and they would break it. And they would take half of it and they would wrap it in a linen cloth. And they would hide it somewhere in the house. Are you seeing it? You seeing the reality? Take the linen cloth, wrap it around this broken piece of bread that's been scourged with stripes and hide it. And at the end of the meal, the kids would be released to go find it. It was like a game. And when they found it and brought it back, it was the dessert for the meal. The reality of the burial was taking place. Here was the symbol. He took Jesus from the cross and buried him right before the Passover so that he would be in the grave when the Feast of Unleavened Bread started. The first Sunday after the Passover began. Now here's something you need to understand. The order of these events, the Passover could take place on the 14th day of the month. It could be any day of the month. Whatever day of the month was the 14th, that was when Passover started. On this particular year, and it happened every seven years, on this particular year, the Passover was on a Thursday. That left two Sabbaths in a row. Because when unleavened bread was celebrated, that was a Sabbath. No work, rest on the Sabbath. That was a Sabbath because it was the first day of the unleavened bread. The next day was Saturday. That was always designated a Sabbath. And the women could not bring and anoint Jesus' body during those days because they were days of rest. That's why they couldn't come till Sunday. The Sunday after the Passover, the feast of Unleavened, a feast of first fruits took place. In this case, it was three days later. Here's what happened. If you can understand that these celebrations were celebrations that were coordinated with the planting and the harvest of their meals, of their wheat and of their barley. God had told them, you don't celebrate this till you get in the promised land till you get into Canaan. Because there you can plant. There you can grow. There you can reap. And so as they came into there and settled, they began to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, and they began to celebrate the feast of first fruits. The first fruits was the first barley that was harvested from their wheat, from their harvest that had been planted. And here's what happened. A priest goes into a barley field. He takes the first fruits from that harvest, brings it back to the temple, waves it before the Lord as a celebration of thanksgiving for all that God has provided for them. First fruits at that time 
the reality of this symbolism is being lived out in the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Three days later, when first fruits celebrated, and the priest went out and got the first fruit from the harvest and brought it in and waved it before the Lord. The first fruit of God rises from the grave. He wasn't the last. He wasn't the only, but he was the first. Not the only fruit to come forth, for it was never the father's heart to have only one son. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, talking about the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. This was the first fruit, but it wasn't the last fruit. This was the first fruit express that there's a first resurrection. There's a first bringing forth from the dead. And when the priest did the symbol, Christ did the reality. But it wasn't the last. The Father's heart was for his glory to reside and his presence to reside in many souls and for many sons to bear the glory of the one that he had brought forth from the grave. He was the first, but he wasn't the last. John 17, 22, 23, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, God, you've got to get this. Boy, Chuck, you're so right. We've got to catch on to this. The glory which you have given to me, he's talking to God, and he says, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Same glory. Not an inkling, not a little portion. The same glory that you gave to me, I gave to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. Now there was, there, uh, in the beginning there was one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there was one. Now we add to our one, sons of glory. We're still one. I want them to be one just like you and the Spirit and I are one. Just like that. <clears throat> that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. How is the world supposed to know? We've got all kinds of gimmicks to get the world to know. He says, I want the world to know through the unity and the understanding that I have given them the same glory you gave me and that we are one. I want that expression to be the thing 
that tells the world who I am. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. First fruits. Not the last fruit, but the first fruit. Substance, fulfilling the symbolism. Now, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, 10 days after Jesus has ascended, Luke says in Acts chapter 1, he revealed himself to us for 40 days, and then he left. And so for 10 days, we've been here in Jerusalem just waiting. Now, they decided to do some things on their own. Whether or not God was in it, we'll never know. But they were to be waiting, giving themselves to prayer. And at that same time, another appointed time is set to be fulfilled. It was called the appointment of the harvest, or feast of harvest, or feast of weeks, and the Greeks called it Pentecost because it was 50 days after Passover. Jews didn't call it Pentecost. They call it Feast of Harvest because it was an extension of the first fruits with the barley that had taken place. Now the wheat is coming in 50 days later, and they're there to celebrate that. Some of them stayed from Pentecost. I mean, some of them stayed from the Passover and hung out in Jerusalem. Where they stayed, we have no idea. But it's fixing to become a bigger mess than it was. In preparation for the feast, a lone priest journeys early in the morning to a wheat field that had ripened during the last 50 days, before it was the barley field, and they made the one loaf out of that without leaven. Now the priest goes to the wheat field, and he picks just enough wheat to make two identical loaves of bread. Same wheat, same flour, but two distinct loaves. Just as he takes those two loaves, this time baked with leaven. Okay? This time the loaf accommodates sin. It's still committed to the Lord. He takes them into the temple and he lifts them up and presents them as an offering to the Lord along with two lambs. And the father is pleased because it's what he's asked for. It wouldn't work 50 days ago. But today it's what the Lord wants because he's got another appointed time and he's saying something different. Just as he takes those two loaves, this time baked with leaven to the temple and presents them with two lambs as an offering to the Father of thanksgiving, the glory of God once again invades earth's realm. Let's read it. Acts chapter 2. Look at the first verse. And when the day of Pentecost had, and the King James has it right when it uses this word, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, 
Wasn't before. It was the day of the harvest. It was the day of the feast of harvest. That day. On that day, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. What were they doing? It doesn't say. Let me tell you what they weren't doing. They weren't crying out to God for come. They weren't begging God to reveal himself. What they were doing is they were being obedient because God said stay in Jerusalem. And that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. They were just there. Maybe hiding from the Jews. But they were together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven. A noise like a violent rushing wind. Wasn't a violent rushing wind. It was the noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire. Wasn't tongues on fire. It was tongues as of fire distributing themselves. They didn't know what it was. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The glory of God, once again, fell on the earth. But not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, and not on one man, but this time in a corporate expression of humanity invaded by deity get that. This is a corporate expression made up of man invaded by deity, invading the earth. God once again was declaring what? I am here. I am here. Why here? Because he said Jerusalem. Why now? Because Pentecost had fully come. The day the feast of harvest had come. If you weren't here, it didn't come. It did come later. It came to the second loaf. But it was years later because the two loaves probably represented the Jew and the Gentile made from the same wheat, one. But it took probably 10 years to get the Jews ready to embrace that and to get their heart around that. And it took God doing a wonderful work in Peter for him to realize it. But God was saying, I am here. And just like that, the dwelling place of God is again established on earth. The temple of God is filled with his glory. Now, the most incredible thing about this event in Acts 2 was not the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. The most incredible event was not tongues as a fire appearing on them. The most incredible event was not that each nation represented there heard the wonderful things of God being proclaimed in their tongue. Those were interesting, but they were not the most incredible. The most phenomenal thing about this event 
is that in one instant, 3,000 living stones, with Christ being the chief cornerstone, 3,000 living stones formed together the genesis of the new temple of God. God's new dwelling place. We get so caught up on the periphery. We get so caught up on the, on the other things. The most incredible thing about this is this is God creating his temple. What the Father had in mind all along and then symbolized through time was now being realized. The temple, made up of living stones, not because they contained human life, but because they now contained God's life within. The first Adam was made a living soul. The second Adam was made a quickening spirit. And now that quickening spirit had taken up residence in every believer together, constituting the temple of God. Jesus fulfilled that fullness of time. Something had to take place after that. What took place after that? That Adam that was a living soul now became a quickening spirit not confined to one location, not confined to time and space, not confined to one little area, not confined to one little city in the east, but now it transformed into that spirit that could now be everywhere in the hearts of everyone that was his son. That's the most incredible thing. That's the most phenomenal thing. What took man years to build, In an instant, the glory of God once again had taken up residence on earth. Think about that. The fullness of time. He fulfilled the prophets. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the time period. And something had to be different after that. It was. Now, God always wanted a temple. It was just never a physical, tangible one made with man's hands. It was one created by God to be an expression of his glory on the earth. That was what it was all about, and now they're experiencing the reality of it. God, again, had a place to meet man. God, again, had a place to fellowship with man, not a symbol, but the reality of everything that God had foretold. And now, once again, God's people have a place to meet God and a place to fellowship with God. Now, it's easy to say... Yeah, you know, if I'd have been back there in Jesus' day, or if we could just get Jesus here, and we lose the reality of what Jesus was saying when he said, it's better. It's better. This is better than Jesus physically on the earth. This is the reality. This is the better. 
But it would so be so easy to just say, you know, if we could just get Jesus here or if we'd have been back there with Jesus, but I wasn't there, well, listen to me. <clears throat> this is now. This is on us. This is on us. We are the temple of God. We are the living stones. We are the meeting place of God. And God has taken his abode in a new temple, in new stones, and he will, can be fellowshiped with, he can be met with, he can be known, he can be experienced, and you don't have to go anywhere geographically to do it. Because he lives in his sons and in his daughters. <clears throat> People heard it and said, well, they're just drunk. Now he said it's even too early for Jews to get drunk. He took his stand, verse 14, with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, that this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through Prophet Joel, continuing to fulfill prophets, continuing to fill what's head, what has been said before. The Old Testament said, God said, there's going to come a time where there's going to be a new covenant and the law is going to be written in your heart and every man will know me. This is it. This is now. This is right now. Why in the world, like he says in Galatians, in Colossians, why in the world would we still want symbolism when we have the reality living in us and in each one of us? Now, look around you. See all these? These are living stones. These are living stones. These make up the temple of God. I think it's interesting that whenever Jesus said, the glory you've given to me, I give to them. Here's what I want them to know. I want them to know that they love me, that you love them just like you love me. And here's what you got to know. As a living stone, the love of the Father is to you just like it is toward Jesus. Just like that. Just like that. That's his love for you. He's the chief cornerstone, but you're a living stone. You are an expression of the glory of God. Well, you know what? I've been to church, and I've never seen the glory of God. Listen, I want to tell you something. When the church starts doing what God wants the church to do and quits doing what a religious system wants the church to do, you will see the glory of God revealed in it once again. Because then people will leave and they'll say, wow, God was in that place. Instead of, don't they have a wonderful program? Wasn't it great preaching? Wasn't that great music? Wasn't it a great time? Oh, they got us out on time. We can get to live. Oh, No, no, no. They'll leave saying, wow, God was in that place. What's it going to take? 
It's for the take the living stones to realize they are the living stones and that God has placed them in the temple for a purpose, to be an expression of his glory. <clears throat> and wouldn't it be nice if we could do it in a perfect world? God says, no, I want you to be light and darkness. I want you to be light in darkness. Well, I want to be light and light. Uh, I want us to be light over here where it's nice. No, I want you to be light and darkness. I want you to be salt. And it's, it's alluded to here. I want you to be salt where there's the potential for rottenness because you will stop the rottenness if you will be salt where I place you. Where do you meet God in fellowship with him? Well, we're not through. Okay, We'll talk more about that next week. This is good stuff. I mean, I, I, I've been trying to get here for weeks. Okay. <laughs> All right, any questions? Is it pretty clear? Got enough to think about this week? Would you take that back right there, Randy? Thank you, Rob. <clears throat> Yeah, read uh, Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. I would like you to read that. Okay, Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. All right. Mm-hmm. Col- oh, that's Philippians. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See? We got the reality living inside of us. Anyone else? All right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. And James Lousen's getting tested tomorrow, so be sure and pray for him. All right, Father, we just bless you for the reality of your word. Thank you for the reality that you've placed in us in Christ. Bring us to a place that you're more real to us than anything we can taste or touch or sense or feel or hear or see. Just work that in us that we might realize what you've deposited inside of us. Thank you for just loving us. Pray for these that are have the COVID or are being tested for it, that you would just work in their body, protect them, give them a good report. We bless you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>